Hey y'all, welcome back to a Wednesday, August 24th, 2022 edition here on the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I'm still the aforementioned Chase Thomas coming to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee. Got a jam-packed show for you guys today with Fangraph's John Taylor talking all things Major League Baseball. We talked about the Braves and what they're going to do with Ozuna and just kind of their outfield depth situation going into the postseason. We talked about the free fall Yankees, but also why they're retiring t- uh, Paul O'Neill's uh, number uh, this season. Um, the Cleveland Guardians still being in first in the AL Central. What to make of that race. Artie Moreno looking to sell the Los Angeles Angels. We talked about the Rangers finally moving on from John Daniels after just so many years uh, running that uh, franchise out there in Texas. We talked about the Cardinals. Uh, hot, hot, hot August and Albert Pujols chasing 700 regular season homers and all that good stuff so all that coming up right for this on today's edition of the chase most podcast thank you as always for making the chase most podcast part of your daily listen wherever and however you listen to this program we greatly appreciate it here at the blue wire pod network uh you can also watch this very show on youtube.com slash chase thomas podcast so like and subscribe and check us out on the youtube front if you prefer to watch your video podcast uh, this is a daily national show, so new episodes every single day in your preferred podcast player. So make sure you're subscribed on your preferred podcast player so you never miss a new episode. All right, Uncle Darren, let's go. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. Hello and welcome back to the Tuesday night edition here on the Chase Thomas podcast. You guessed it. We're taping this on a Tuesday night. John Taylor, Fangraphs.com, here at this time, as he is every week on YouTube.com slash Jason Thomas Podcast as well. If you prefer to watch this very program, guess what? We got you covered. YouTube.com slash Chase Thomas Podcast. John, good evening, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Not too bad, sir. Not too bad. Uh, Braves, obviously, winning two big series over the last week. Uh, the Astros over the weekend, and then... Of course, the uh, the Mets last week. So, pretty good time in Braves country outside of a name-redacted uh, backup outfielder who is going mm. to make a lot of money to uh, maybe play baseball. Uh, we'll see. Um, if the Braves fans, so shout out to the Atlanta fans who booed said name-redacted player for being in the lineup uh, over the weekend. Um, yeah, outside of that blemish, um, all good in Braves country. A little different than Bosak country right now. Yeah, I mean, but things haven't been good there for a solid two months at this point. So what else yeah. is new? Um, but yeah, we'll see what happens. I don't know what they're going to do with Azuna. I, I really don't know. Uh, I, I mean, I don't. I don't baseball. think. I don't think they can do anything this season because they don't have the outfield depth built up, or the better said, the offense. I mean. I can see him losing his job in the sense I can see them minimizing him, even regard, even leaving the DUI aside. Um, which, correct me if I'm wrong, guys don't get do guys does MLB suspend guys for DUIs or do they just play on depending on how a court of law finds them? That's what I'm wondering. I wonder if it is based on how it ends. So it's like once the it goes through, I don't know if it's like yeah. I, I just I I can't off the top of my head remember uh, any. MLB DUI suspension. I'm just going to just Google it really fast. But regardless of what the league wants to do, MLB does not have a formal DUI suspension policy for what it's worth. Um, Mm. And previous guys have been who've, uh, I should say, court of law that it's a DUI. It's just a matter of it literally happened in the moment. Um, Mm. Previous guys who've been been caught driving under the influence have not been suspended. 
but I can see, given just how bad Ozuna has been anyway, that the Braves are probably going to minimize his playing time as much as they can. I imagine that if and when Ozzy Albies returns, Vaughn Grissom will probably just shift out to the outfield to try to help out there. Um, that's and- interesting because that's the new question, right? Like, Vaughn is too good not to play. That's well, I think not it's, yeah. even, even just beyond being too good, I just think Ozuna very clearly, there's just it's just not whatever it is, be it the whatever's going on in his personal life. And he clearly does not seem to be a, um, in the parlance of our times, a good dude, or if he has just hit a particular cliff or wall or whatever it happens to be. I, I really just don't get the sense the Braves have any interest in trying him any longer. And Grissom just represents a better, more appealing option in a lot of regards. I mean, how much, how much outfield is Ozuna even playing at this point? Or is he pretty much just the perma DH? I mean, he's basically just been the permanent DH, and unless they really are trying to give somebody a day off or they're really in a bind, they're not doing, they're not running that experiment anymore. But I just, I worry, like, is Von Grissom capable of playing, le- just throwing the rookie out there essentially and just I mean, being it's, like, hey, it's tough. Yeah. It's not ideal. I mean, and like I was saying, at least roster depth wise, like the Braves don't really have another outfield option at this point. I know they've got Eddie Rosario back, but Eddie Rosario is also no one's idea of, of a good defensive outfielder. He's a pretty bad one. Uh, Robbie Grossman is fine, but Robbie Grossman is, I think, better at this point as a bench bat and as a platoon guy. Uh, given, well, I mean, he's a switch hitter, so he can play either side, but I think they're they're happier with him as, as, a, as a reserve outfielder than as a starter. Guillermo Heredia and... Here, Adrianza are really your only backup outfield options on the roster otherwise. So, yeah, I mean, this isn't the idea. I mean, really, I mean. Duvall uh, going down for the season was not something you needed. Yeah, and and truthfully, leaving aside the ethical side of, again, Marcelo Zuna has now been has now been arrested on domestic violence and on a DUI. It's just. In about a one-year time span. In a one-year time span, and based on the way he's treating on social media, seems to think that he is the victim in all of this and not, you know, his abused partner or the uh, theoretical people he could have seriously injured or killed by driving drunk, to say nothing of himself. But this, at least on a purely, just looking at a purely on-the-field level, this is really not ideal timing for this to happen because the Braves, I mean, if this had happened before the deadline, they can go out and get more outfield help. That's not coming right now which is why I end up thinking it really will just be kind of grissom or bust if they just have no interest in dealing with those anymore. Um, and I do think that he, he has one more year left on his contract, correct? Uh, he has, wait, did you say one or two? I said one, but I, I I'm not he has sure. two. Whatever it is, I, I imagine Atlanta I think he will has two, like after this year. Away. Yeah, like I, 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 I can't. A terrible contract because he just got extended before last year. So I, think... yeah, but so, so either way, but like I, I, I definitely don't think Ozuna is a part of any future Braves team at this point. I think, especially given the way the fans react, I think it'd be one thing if the fans had, you know, if he'd come back and they'd been like, yeah, this guy, but you know, whatever. Getting booed. I mean, I, I saw uh, Braves fans online pointing out the last time Braves play, I mean, I'm sure Braves players have booed their own at home before, but like, the last time we saw a response of this level from Braves fans was David Justice back in like 95 after he mm. got after he made the comments he made about Braves fans and then he got traded to the team and they booed him when he showed up. But then obviously he you know did what he did in Atlanta to, to turn his to turn things around. But yeah, I 
I cannot see Ozuna's career. He has he has two more years coming after this one, plus a team option Brave for 2025. Top. Yeah, that's I'm going to go ahead and guess it's not getting picked up. But yeah, no, I, I would guess that they will try as hard as they can this offseason to dump him on someone else and failing that will probably just release him at some point in the offseason. I just don't know why you don't release him now. Like, it's just one of those, just get it. Like, you don't want this looming over the team going into a, a time. Well, again, I, like, I think it's a matter of if if you release him now, even as poorly as he's played and for as bad of a, a fit as he is in terms of, you know, everything right now, what is the replacement option? Like you said, Duvall is gone and really would be the only one who would make any real sense to replace him i can at the very least i can see him getting left off the postseason roster in in exchange for someone like i mean depending let's i think they want to see let's see how grissom does uh if we do move him to the outfield and how he plays there maybe he's an option there you know maybe it's a matter of seeing okay can we get eddie rosario from here to the end of the season healthy because that's been a struggle in and of itself um you know, what do they want to like? How healthy is Ozzy Albies going to look when he comes back? And, you know, what is what is that going to look like? Is there a I mean, and, and granted, Ozuna wouldn't help with this, but is there a wall that Michael Harris is about to run into a rookie? Don't wall you dare, John. Don't you do that. You know, it's a possibility. You know this. You know, I, this. I also know that this man skipped triple A and uh, is one of the youngest players in baseball and is not phased one bit. John, I also, I mean, that's I, what we know. I have to assume, too, that Orlando Arcia will probably come back at some point unless his hamstring strain is really, really serious. So there will be options. There will be options, I think. This is my prediction. I think he's I think Ozuna stays on the roster for the rest of the season because truly there's no there's seemingly no point to replacing him right now. There is no replacement that can be offered. And. You know, I, I think if nothing else it doesn't really make sense to cut a potentially useful play again, because you know, who knows who, what might happen between now and the beginning of the postseason. But I do think that Ozuna will almost certainly get left off the postseason roster in part because he is such a defensive liability that you can really only play him at DH. And if he's not hitting and he's already someone that Braves fans want no part of, and you have to assume too, in the clubhouse, you know, for a guy who's already missed time um, because of his own personal failings to now, jeopardize that even more by getting caught drunk driving at 4 30 in the morning you cannot you can imagine i'm marcelo zuna with the braves i'm a zuna yeah. with the braves oh, and it's like goodness. i i can't imagine he's a particularly popular figure in that clubhouse right now so but that's also what i'm saying john is like i just don't know if the booze are going to stop like i don't know if this gets any better so do you really want just dfam like i just that is my whole thing is like, I would just do that. And, and I, and I totally get that. But I think that given that there's still five weeks of the regular season to go and that the Braves are currently relying on out an outfield combo of guy who's always hurt in Rosario guy who's old and not playing particularly well in Grossman and possibly some weird combination of Vaughn Grissom, Orlando Arcia and Guillermo Heredia. None of those three really being guys you want to trust out there for a variety of reasons, full time. And also the fact that you do have to, you know, start a DH and you do need a bat to put in there at some point. I don't think there's any reason to get rid of our uh, Acuna. Jesus, I don't think there's any good reason to get rid of Ozuna Mm -hmm. right now. I just don't think he's a part of the playoff roster. And I don't think he's a part of this Braves team in 2023 or going forward. I think they release him during the offseason, but they'll try to get whatever limited value they can out of him between then and now. He's He's still a body, if nothing else. He is still a body, you know? I don't know that if you go back and Sandy Alcantara is in that trade for Marcelo Zuna. Yeah, uh, that that one really did not work out well for the Cardinals of St. Louis um, in what they gave up. But 
It's funny, like it, it, none of those trades. I mean, yeah, the Brewers got an MVP and Christian Yelich out of it, but his career has seemingly disintegrated since then, uh, and he's no longer anywhere near the same hitter he was. Ozuna obviously uh, did not pan out for the Cardinals. I think the way they wanted to, and cost him Alcantara. Um, the JT Realmuto trade is so far has not borne terribly much fruit for the Marlins, uh, given that Sixto Sanchez has been hurt for the majority of it. So it, it's weird looking back on those trades now, because at the time it felt like, boy, the Marlins are getting rid of everyone and everyone's going to benefit from it. And I mean, certainly there has been benefit for the teams that made those trades, but I think ultimately it's been a little more mixed than I, I, I think we would have imagined. I mean, the Yelich, I, I, I mean, I'm not going to get to the Marlins. Marlins are their own excellent problem. I was just realizing, too, that the return for the Yelich trade has also been a disaster for the Marlins in that it was mostly Lewis Brinson and Isan Diaz and Monte Harrison, and none of those three guys proved to be able to hit major league pitching. Yeah. Well, we shall see, John Taylor. We shall see what happens. Um, what we also are going to see is that the New York Yankees are retiring Paul O'Neill's number, John. And they've mm-hmm. already retired a bunch, like Bernie Williams is retired, uh, Jeter, obviously. You go up and down the list. Um, Is this worthy? Like, is Paul O'Neill in, what, his eight years in New York? Is this? I saw this, and I was like, <sighs> it's a good number, problem number one. That is a problem I have. It's not a weird one like 51 where even if you're kind of a fringe retire the number guy like Bernie, well, hey, nobody wants to pick that really anyway. Like is Brett Gardner going to get his number retired like five years from now? Is that where we're at right now? Because I just I this yeah, is, I mean, this is it, silly. Paul O'Neill getting his number retired, I think is is pretty silly, right? It's, I mean, it's silly insofar as Paul O'Neill is not and will never be and is no one's idea of a Hall of Famer aside right? from the more thick-headed Yankee fans in existence who also think guys like Andy Pettit are Hall of Famers. And Andy Pettit also has had his number case. retired. Uh, I mean, and, but this is part of the thing. Like, I don't. These retirements obviously are not happening solely because of are you Hall of Fame worthy or not. This is the Yankees choosing to recognize the core four and and honestly, you know, with. Um, well, I, I guess O'Neill wasn't really part of that core four because I was Jeter, Rivera, Posada, uh, Bernie Williams, and um, who am I missing in there? Am I missing anyone? Wait, say it again. Jeter, Rivera, Posada, Pettit. Clemens? Uh, no, I mean, I guess it's just those four, but also recognizing that O'Neill was part of that, that he was there mm-hmm. for a lot of those good years. He obviously remains a fan favorite because he does represent, I think, some of the you know, more, he, he, I think he's, he is the, the current day Yankees equivalent, I think to Keith Hernandez in a lot of Mm. ways, not, not in terms of careers, not in terms of, of how their, of what their careers looked like. Although Hernandez is also a guy who, I know Hernandez was a better player in his career than Paul O'Neill was in his time, but in that same kind of emotional resonance, I think that Hernandez has with Mets fans, O'Neill has with Yankees fans. It's this kind of salt of the earth, like, you know, warrior type guy that they all adored. And like, you know, I I think, Oh, and again, Hernandez was a better player than O'Neill was. I think O'Neill got to this place particularly a lot thanks to his reputation of being just such a red ass, hard ass. You know, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a big time player. To, purely by the numbers, no, this is not a retirement worthy thing. Just mm. be going if you want to get into the an, advanced analytics nerd stuff. Um, and this is granted, this is this is Hall of Fame stuff. This is not Yankees retired numbers standards, but still, Paul O'Neill finishes career with just shy of 39 wins above replacements. Uh, the average Hall of Fame right fielder put up 71 in their career. 
by those ranks, and this is through Jay Jaffe's JAW system, which is his his way of or his uh, wins above replacement based kind of grading system or, or number system for for retired player for retired and current players. Uh, O'Neill ranks is 66th in the right field rankings, just above Sean Green and right behind Reggie Sanders. Amusingly enough, he's been passed in career wins above replacement by Aaron Judge. Uh, hmm. I do kind of enjoy that. There are all of I believe three, yes, four, no. Four, five, five Hall of Fame right fielders with a worse career wins above replacement than O'Neill. I'm pretty sure they were all inducted by either the Veterans Committee or for their contributions elsewhere, like Casey Stengel. Um, I mean, just looking by career war, O'Neill is on the same level as Juan Gonzalez, Kirk Gibson, David Justice, weirdly enough, Roger Maris, uh, Maglio Ordonez, Jason Hayward. I mean, some of those guys are better known than others. Certainly guys like Gibson and Maris have claims to fame well beyond what their careers were. And maybe Gibson may just be the best kind of overall analogy to him, better than Hernandez, with that same kind of temperament, that same kind of mentality, that same kind of the same kind of overall shape to their careers, the same kind of, I think, what they meant to the fan base, just generally meaning more than what their actual career was. Because, yeah, I, the, the, Paul O'Neill's not getting his number retired for anything for, because of the fact that he's a future Hall of Famer, that he was some kind of all-time Yankees great. He's simply not. He's getting his number retired because he means a lot to a particular segment of Yankees fans uh, that is roughly between our ages to about mm, 20 or so years older, for whom he was one of the faces of those championship teams. And I think that particularly given that, you know, since 2000, since 2000, the Yankees have won all of a single World Series. Mm. I think there is also an element of the franchise kind of wanting to hang on to that, to those years, to those dynasty years, because it's really the last time the Yankees were the Yankees in that sense. You know, Paul O'Neill, in a sense, calls back to those last dying Yankee dynasty days in the same way. I think that Yankees fans probably felt in the fifth, like looking back from the 70s to the 50s and the 60s about the way those teams, or at least in the early 70s, and then I, get, I imagine in the 80s, the way those teams were dynastic in a way that future Yankees teams simply weren't. Um, so yeah, this is, this is more than anything about nostalgia, which, I mean, every number retirement is about nostalgia, but this is purely nostalgia because on a pure numbers, stats, career basis, no, there's no reason to retire Paul O'Neill's number. He was a fine player for what he was. But he was never anything. Maglio Ordonez. I'm glad you said him because that's who I always thought about with him. It's like he was the Maglio for the Yankees. But it's like it's fine. But how much do we put on Jerry Seinfeld for this debacle? How much do we put uh, Paul O'Neill's appearance on the most popular program of all time? Is that uh, a big part of this? Is that he was on the screen with Kramer, and then people were like, "Oh, what a legend! He made Look, it on." And you made the Keith Hernandez. You brought Keith Hernandez to the table. I mean, two Seinfeld guys. A New York athlete between the years 1989 and 1996. Like there was a good chance you were going to end up on Seinfeld anyway, particularly if you're a baseball player. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny. I hadn't remembered the O'Neill thing until you just mentioned and the whole, why did you promise two home runs? It was better than one. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I hope they brought the sick kid from the hospital to be a part of the ceremony. Uh, uh, well, hold on, that. John. There's a, um, there's a, uh, I, how do I frame this without, uh, uh, maybe off air or I'll send it in the chat of why uh, that might not be the best idea for Paul O'Neill to be around a sick child. Um, fair. Okay. Fair. I'd forgotten about that too, but okay. So you know what yeah, I'm talking no, about. Yeah. yeah. There's, but yeah, there's, there's no reason, but nostalgia and, um, and, and whatever feel like, and the, the desire on the Yankees part to make people remember those teams again, 
the, to, re, to retire and pull. Also, the fact that O'Neill is, for all intents and purposes, a team employee now. I mean, he works as a color guy on Yes Network. Mm. You know, there there is also that element of it, too, where I think it's, you know. But 21 is a good number. This is some BS well, for kids coming up. 21 is a, a good number. That is the thing to me about the Yankees retiring numbers, where to me it's less about who they choose to retire, more about the fact they don't have numbers left. Yes. Like, You're going to have to start unretiring some numbers soon because they have retired a unbelievable amount of numbers. Yeah, now. they literally do not have single digit numbers available anymore. All single digit numbers have been retired by the Yankees. Uh, every number through 10, they, they still have a few numbers in the teens that have not been retired. Um, but here, here's a full list of retired Yankees numbers. 1 through 10, 15, 16, 20, 21, 23, 32, 37, 42, 44, 46, 49, and 51. Goodness gracious. So there are some gaps in there in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, I guess, and then above. And I mean, I, I'm not knowledgeable. I don't I don't know uniform numbers off the back of my off the top of my head. So I, I don't know what current or recent Yankees have worn those numbers. It may also one day come into this conversation. But yeah, it's it's definitely a thin crop, at least in the teens, if you want a Yankees number. Um the thing is, though, I don't see them ever unretiring these because all of these retired numbers, you know, are they are all kind of foundational numbers within Yankees mythology. Do you know what I mean? Every single one of these players is either a Hall of Famer or some some building block part of the Yankees franchise in its history or both. You know, the closest I think you can get to saying, OK, that's a little much is a guy like O'Neill or Pettit or Someone maybe like a. I mean, Billy Martin's already been fired 19 times with the organization. Fire his number being retired. There you go. Yeah, and I think, but I think part of it too is like, especially anyone who's dead on this list and is in a hall of, I mean, is in the hall of fame or carried some kind of emotional cachet like Martin. Kind of hard to see them unretiring that too, you know? Yeah. Like, I mean, look, like, no, they're never going to unretire like Jeter's number or Babe Ruth's number or Gehrig's number, DiMaggio's number, Mickey Mantle's. Those are the Joe Cody Torrey Barrett's though. Number. Like number six, like Joe Torrey doesn't need his number retired. Six needs to open back up. But that, but that's but then that's the question yeah. beyond that. It's like if you retire a number, and this is just beyond the Yankees. This is, I guess, the entirety of, of baseball. You consider it. When is it fair game if you feel like you want to unretire it? I mean, I think it's one mm. thing if like we were to get a news story out tomorrow that it's like breaking. Joe Torre is a serial arsonist who's burned down a thousand homes. Like, pretty sure his number would get unretired at that point, or at the very mm. least, the Yankees would would go to some lengths to try to put Joe Torre under some kind of shadow to, to kind of obscure his, his connection to the team or, or what have you. But barring something like that, like I, what would even be the criteria for unretiring a number beyond? We just don't have enough left. That's a good reason. That but is a good thing. reason. Like, even, even without, yeah. even with that, the Yankees still have a bunch of numbers from 10 onward available, just not as many as other teams do. Yeah. Honestly, this is a bigger problem. I think in spring training, when you have so many guys there, all of whom need a Jersey, that you're just going to end up handing out 83 or whatever to six different guys and being like, well, we'll figure it out later. But I think I don't if, know, if anything, man. I just think it's so silly. Retiring numbers is one of the silliest things in sports. And if I ever become sports are, I'm immediately getting rid of that. Like the NBA, okay. get full, like the NBA made all number six retired now after B- Bill Russell retired. Bill Russell, an icon, a legendary figure in this league, did so much good, put up with so much crap at his time. All that can be true. But also, why does the Utah Jazz? Why, if you're a player on the Utah Jazz, why can you not wear number six? Because Bill, Ru- like, what? I, mean, I, I, I do think there's probably. I don't know if there's a better way to remember because I, I agree with like the league wide, the league wide retirement thing. I think 
it's tricky because I mean the baseball the baseball equivalent is Jackie Robinson in forty two, right? And I think that there is definitely a vital and useful and genuinely good purpose to having him stand us above and beyond everyone, literally mm-hmm. everyone who's ever played the game um, at some point. And, and to think of and to say nothing of all the players of color who have fo- who have followed in his footsteps and who owe him. Uh, as much as anyone else, you know, the a, a eternal debt of gratitude for being able to do it. Um, I think the thing with Bill Russell is a little different because Bill Russell, I mean, it, it's weird because I don't want to say he was, he was not the Jackie Robinson of the NBA, mostly because that's an insane thing just to think about anyway, but also because he was never treated in that way by the league itself. And granted, mm-hmm. MLB didn't really jump onto the Jackie Robinson bandwagon the way it did until the 90s when they did retire his number, when the league did retire his number and made Jackie Robinson Day more of a thing as opposed to what it was previously, which was to be just kind of something I was like, oh, hey, isn't that nice? Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. I don't, I guess the, the question would be if you don't want to retire numbers, like what, what do you want to do then to, to honor those particular guys? I mean, I know Yankee Stadium's got Monument Park and they do their own thing there. That's or, cool. Or stuff like that. And I also think there is something Ring of honor, nice. give him some cool rings. But like uh, ring, I, I think there's something nice about a retired number in baseball ring of honor style that it's like it, it ends up also being a celebration, not just of that player, but also of the, you know, the the part, the era of that team that they got to be a part of. Yeah. You know, that it, it's not so much even about the player. It's like, again, it's not this is so much about Paul O'Neill, the player, because I guarantee most most fans under the age of 30 do not give a crap about Paul O'Neill or who he is or know him as anything other than the guy on Yankees broadcast who I sometimes confuse with John Flaherty, like, yeah. or whoever else is doing Yankees broadcast nowadays. Like maybe that's it. It's just a year. Like we, we give you like 25 years of a retired well, Jersey we, and then just, okay. I, yeah. I can see, I could see that, that it's like, we want to preserve this see- moment for a while for the folks who are like, it'd be weird to immediately transition from a number two, Derek Jeter to like um, number two, who insert I don't know who like would have like Josh Donaldson immediately being number two right after yeah, Derek and, and, I, and you're like this is insane this I guess is that's weird. a good point like there there are definitely numbers that the Yankees in particular have retired like you know Babe Ruth or Mickey Mantle or you know like guys how who many like, people today know who what number they were like how many off the well, top I was, of the, yeah I, I was even just thinking like what does the what does retiring the number of someone like Bill Dickey even mean anymore exactly someone who mattered to a very specific time period of Yankees baseball but who carries virtually no impact or importance currently. And not because of any, like not because of any deficiencies on his part as a player, but simply because he played a very, very long time ago and Mm -hmm. is really only known to us, to a a small group of particularly diehard Yankees fans, or at least knowledgeable Yankees fans and other fans. And most of that fan base is older too. Like I, I can't imagine there are too many fans again, under the age of 30, who are studying up on the Yankees retired numbers and learning all about Bill Dickey, mm. you know, and that's not to say that that means we should unretire Bill Dickey's number, but I don't know. Maybe there is, maybe there is something to say or something to be done or, or what have you about, you know, may, maybe there is this idea that these numbers don't have to be permanently retired, that they can just be a, a, a temporary kind of celebration of who this player was at the time. But then we kind of, also, then we adapt with the times. You're like, Hey, this guy was important but we don't have to hold him like it, it, I, I don't know. I mean, it's to like hold this number hostage for a hundred years in a sense. It's like, well, isn't that what the hall of fame is for? Maybe, maybe what every team just needs is some kind of small team museum within their own, within their own stadium or something where they can do the, the work of honoring these guys historically and what they meant to the franchise and what they meant to baseball at large. 
I don't know. I mean, I think ultimately number retirement is is a, a harmless thing that it really only affects you if you're the Yankees in this in this particular scenario. Um, I think there are some circumstances, like you said, with the Bill Russell number retirement where it's like that number means a lot more to some teams like the Celtics. And by some teams, I mean, to the Celtics than it does to other teams in particular. Like, it's really mm-hmm. funny to think about, like, the New Orleans Pelicans having a retired Bill Russell number when it's like yeah. he was he was out of the NBA like five decades before they came into existence or whatever. Right. It's like he means nothing to them and to their fan base. I like the idea, though, in the sense that it is a way to signify this person meant more than just what they did on the court, that they are in some form so legendary, so important that we can't let anyone else kind of take that. But then that gets complicated, too, because, I mean, the Yankees even had it with themselves. 42 is retired for Jackie Robinson, but it's also retired for Mariano Rivera. Mm -hmm. Similarly with the Red Sox, 42 is retired for or sorry, I'm I'm thinking of um, I got that wrong. You know, that David Ortiz had 34, which is now retired. Pedro Martinez having 45 retired like Mm. um, I don't know. It's again, I I fall on the side that it's ultimately harmless, but it is kind of funny to see who gets that honor and who doesn't and why. And I think when you do end up doing something like we're retiring Paul O'Neill's number, not because he's a fall hall of famer, not because he's a very important part of this team currently or, or its core, you know, cause he's not the manager or the general manager or anything. Again, his biggest role is he is a color guy sometimes like, but we're doing this in order to uh, lure in 42 year old Yankees fans to have them come to the stadium so they can go Paulie like one more time. Yeah, I guess I guess that's a roundabout way of saying that this feels more about the commercial and kind of nostalgia, taking advantage of the nostalgia of it as opposed to anything that had to do with Paul O'Neill as the player. Because Paul O'Neill, the player, is not someone you can argue really on any level or merits having his number retired. You know, so he was. It was also not like he's a career Yankee. Yeah, he spent a good chunk of time in New York as a Yankee. But he was not a Yankee forever. He he wasn't even a product of the Yankees' farm. The system. majority he of his team time wasn't with the Yankees, was it? Because he only got what eight years with the Yankees. Yeah, that, it's like it'd be like retiring to it'd be like to a certain degree retiring Tino Martinez's number. Yeah, or, or Clemens's number. You know, and like, and I think it also speaks a lot as to who basically gets to be popular going forward. Right. You know, Roger Clemens arguably did as much, if not more, for those Yankees teams than Paul O'Neill ever did. But Roger Clemens is never going to get his number retired because Roger Clemens is a surly prick who took steroids (laughs) and nobody likes him. And the Yankees do not want to highlight that aspect of anything. They'd mm-hmm. much rather, again, point to Paul O'Neill and be like, hey, remember the guy who, was, who punched water coolers and was a big, crazy hothead and whatever, and you can still hear him on yes? Well, he's back now, and he won a bunch of rings with us. Now he's coming back. We get to have a, a little nostalgia day. But, I mean, we're already seeing it, too, with teams having all the various 10-year anniversaries, 5-year anniversaries, 20-year anniversaries of, of championship teams and whatnot. I mean, shit, 10 years or 9 years from now, the Braves will be doing the 2021 anniversary. You know, they'll be bringing those guys back to to celebrate them, except for Marcelo Zuna. Like that will be the, that is an, an inescapable part of what baseball is. And I think, I mean, it's always been their numbers have been teams have been retiring numbers for a bit now. But yeah, when it when it's when it's someone like O'Neill, it is it is much more visibly a nostalgia play and a money play than it is anything about, oh, this guy was an all time great. Paul O'Neill was not an all time great. Paul O'Neill was fine. He's a fine player. There you go. We'll leave it there, John. Um, next up. So there's a really good blog a few weeks back. Uh, I forgot who the author was in Defector uh, who wrote about the AL Central race and just how disgusted 
they were by the AL Central race existence. With good you know reason. I believe, I believe it was Lauren Thyssen. Yeah. I believe they're the one who wrote that. It was a great blog. And it bears repeating. The AL Central is for sickos. And it's, John, yeah, the Cleveland Guardians are going to win this division. And the Cleveland Guardians do not want to win the AL Central. It is the most under talked about. No one's talking about this division right now. No one's talking about no the Guardians be. just being in first. John, the Guardians are just in first. I don't under- explain to me how the Guardians are just coasting to a division title that the front office did nothing at the deadline. <laughs> they have just been going about their business. No, like th- I don't know if a brand, a new branding could go any more. Just doot, doot, doot. like just no one is any like. There's no <laughs> excitement, no buzz, and there should be. It's like new name, great. We got rid of the racist old stuff guardians cool it means a lot to our city the logos are so boring the whole team is boring it's all just the most boring playoff run and playoff just postseason well, it's, run it's the, the the al central isn't a division that's being won so much as it's who's who's gonna lose it less yeah because really if you want to figure out why the guardians are in first place some of it is a, a lot of it obviously is owed to them they're against I think against the odds of most people, I think a lot of people projected this team to be 500 around there and to be kind of a middling playoff contender. And they have been better than that, thanks in large part to some better than expected performances from guys like Andres Jimenez and Steven Kwan and uh, a resurgence from Shane Bieber, better bullpen, I think, than most people expected, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. On the other hand, they are here to a certain degree because the White Sox are a disaster mm-hmm. that cannot stop shooting themselves in the foot. They're here because the Twins are a walking injured list whose major additions have not really produced. I think, you know, Carlos Correa is a guy who's not he's not really had the car, the season we would have expected Carlos Correa to have. Their rotation, which we all pointed out before the season started, was not in super great shape, has turned out to be not super great. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, it, it's weird because it is that point of both Cleveland earned this and they are here because because they're two best competitors for the division. I think the teams that everyone projected would be one, one and two in some capacity have just not played up to snuff. I mean, you look at Minnesota in particular, I mean, since, and, and this is something too, where it's like, you look at it this way, since the all-star break, uh, Cleveland has gone 18 and 12 and particular 12 and seven in the month of August. Uh, the twins on the other hand have gone, oh, I'll tell you in a minute when, when baseball references schedule page loads. This is where I need a soundboard. Here we go. Nine and ten in August, twelve and fourteen in the second half. I, I guarantee the White Sox are probably somewhere along that same kind of middle ground, five hundred ish schedule, both in the month of August and since the since the sorry since the All Star break. So yeah, they've been able to take advantage of the fact that they're sixteen and fourteen in the second half, eleven and ten in August for the White Sox. So. They've been able to take advantage of the fact that their two biggest competitors have struggled for the season, are particularly just kind of listless right now. And again, that they do have, I think, a better roster than a lot of people projected. That said, I think this is still comfortably going to be the weak, at the very least, the weakest division winner at this point of all the division winning teams, if it is in fact Cleveland. And for what it's worth, uh, based on Fangraph's playoff odds, Cleveland is the favorite to win this division now at 48%, followed by the White Sox at 25.7, or sorry, 47.9 for the Guardians, 26.4% for the Twins, 25.7% for the White Sox. So 
Fangraphs. When now did it finally flip? When did the model finally flip from the White Sox? When did it finally admit defeat that when the numbers did, were like? When we did cannot... the numbers finally? Yeah. When the numbers finally mm-hmm. be like? There's only so much Tony Larusa that we can deal with in this. Mm-hmm. Like there's, was it there's the only Tim so Anderson injury. Like what actually happened here? The Tim, what, the Tim Anderson injury was a big one. I remember uh, when it happened. Dan Samborski wrote a piece for us that noted that it had basically sliced something like ten points off their playoff odds because Anderson is oh, just wow. that hard to replace. Um, per our graphs, the first time that the division odds for Cleveland passed. By the way, have I been saying Indians or Guardians? Uh, I thought you'd been saying Guardians, but I thought so too. But I, I just yeah. Per our per our division winning odds and our graphs, uh, Cleveland officially passed both teams back on August. I believe like the tenth is when the first time they had better odds than both. And since August eighteenth, they've had uh, they've been the top dog in terms of our playoff odds. Uh, Chicago finally has sunk finally sunk to third around the tenth. Dipped mission back, accomplished. Dipped back up to just a smidge into first on the 16th and has been and has since lost about the White Sox division odds were 37% on August 16th they are 24.7% now Ugh. yeah so i think it, and and part of that too is when you look at those odds and when you look at again i've i've mentioned before that those odds are calculated in large part based on strength <laughs> of schedule and uh projections for the rest of the season winning percentage for the roster itself um the Guardians have, or the, the White Sox have the weakest strength of schedule left. Or sorry, the, the White Sox have the weakest strength of schedule left, but they have also just dug themselves so deep a hole that it quite frankly doesn't really matter at this point. Um, to say nothing of the fact that they're down Tim Anderson, Lucas Giolito does not look remotely healthy. They just lost Michael Kopech probably for the rest of the season to a knee injury that for whatever reason on God's earth, they tried to let him pitch through in an absolutely excruciating outing yesterday against Kansas city. Uh, I think similarly with the twins who our projections, say have the toughest schedule going forward of the three division contending teams. It really is something where every single, every single game, every, obviously every game matters, but every single win for these teams matters at this point. And there's just so little time left either to break out and gain that advantage or to even create another advantage of anywhere. Again, there are no trades that can be there that are left really to make, Another thing to be noted, too, is of these three teams, Cleveland has the best options in terms of internal reinforcements, thanks to the fact that they have the best farm system of these three teams right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, You look at Cleveland, at least in terms of what they have available to them on their roster, uh, in terms of the top prospects they have. Obviously, we've already seen a little bit of Nolan Jones this season. He just got sent down uh, a few days ago, but is an option to come back up if need be and has been a good bat for them in the past. Uh, Brian Rocchio, Bo Naylor, Lo- like Logan Allen, George Valera, they're all hanging out in AAA right now. And I don't think necessarily that guys like Valera or, say, Gabriel Arias are going necessarily to be on the move anytime soon. But they are, I mean, in terms of top 10 prospects coming into the season, four of their top 10, four of their top six actually are sitting in AAA right now in Jones, Rocchio, uh, Valera, and Naylor. And, like, granted, a guy like Naylor isn't going to come up to be the starting catcher right now. Uh, a guy like Valera probably is not going to push anyone aside in the outfield, although you could argue that they should probably make room in right field where they have not really gotten anything out of Oscar Gonzalez. Obviously, guys like Rocchio and Arias, you know, barring injuries to Andres Jimenez or Ahmed Rosario or Jose Ramirez, they don't really need them right now. But those reinforcements are there in a way that they very clearly are not for, say, Chicago, which was just reduced signing Elvis Andrews off the off the waiver wire or for Minnesota, which has 
just completely run out of bodies in every respect. So I think that's also really important to note too, that the division in this sense is coming down to the wire. And, it, and in that way, it's going to be, I think the healthiest team that comes away with it, the team that has the most resources at their disposal and available to them. And right now that's Cleveland in, in every aspect. I mean, we can talk too about the impact that James Karinchak has had since he's come up from AAA. He's been a, a, a monster for them in the late innings, giving them another weapon alongside Emmanuel Clayson, and Trevor Steffen. Like, that has been it has been really really good for Cleveland that they they have more access to better depth better internal reinforcements than any of their other competitors do and that's also going to go a long way toward the projections thinking that the Guardians do have the best shot of anyone left to win that division but either way like I like, look this is a good Cleveland team in a lot of regards they don't strike out um, they make a lot of contact they're really good defensively you know that's it's a pesky lineup it's a tough lineup who's the best matchup for them in round one. The, the thing is, I don't really know that there is one because the, the team doesn't hit for power. Um, mm. They don't draw a lot of walks. This is not a, this is a team that re, that relies on contact to get on base, which is that much harder in the postseason against teams that are pulling that are putting out, um, you know, their best starters, their best relievers, using them for more of those more plate appearances, more high leverage plate appearances in particular. That's going to be really tough for Cleveland to overcome, especially because there is no power on this roster, with the exception of. Uh, Jose Ramirez, Josh Naylor, and Andre Jimenez. That's really it. These, those are the guys power-wise that you're counting on. They don't have Framil Reyes anymore. They cut ties with him. Uh, it felt, I mean, un- understandably so. You can't keep giving up bats to a guy who's simply not producing, but that does really lower their ceiling in terms of the power they have available. Uh, the other thing you, you like, you, you wonder is, you know, Jose Ramirez is going to have to be a big engine for this team. You know, that, mm. that is the guy who, if they're going to make any kind of realistic playoff run, it, it's Ramirez who's got to be the guy who gets in there. Obviously, they have the nice complementary pieces in, in Jimenez and Rosario and Steven Kwan. And obviously, they will go as far, too, as what Shane Bieber can give them, which has been fantastic so far, despite the fact he really doesn't throw above like 92 miles an hour right now, which is kind of amazing. He's beginning the subtle yet, the gradual yet subtle transformation into becoming um, the next Zach Greinke in that sense. But... A lot of this is going to fall on Ramirez, who is uh, typically, traditionally, for the last few years, been the engine of this offense. And Jose Ramirez has not looked super great of late. Um, just looking at his splits since the really since the end of the first half, uh, hitting in the second half, 261, 302, 426 for a 728 OPS, compared to 288, 368, 576 for a 944 OPS in the first half. He has a 670 OPS in the month of August. And granted, like, you know, streaks, streaks and slumps happen. This is not to say that Jose Ramirez is, is bad now, but he they he really, you know, it's, it's impressive that the in there. Sorry, I almost said it there. It's impressive that the Guardians have been able to get or been able to maintain the spot where they are, especially the, the record they've had in the month of August, despite the fact that Ramirez has been so bad lately. But that really needs to change if they have any hope both of holding on to their division lead and also of really doing anything in the playoffs themselves. Because again, this is this is not a particularly strong team overall. I do think there are some things that make them playoff dangerous. The fact that they are a good contact team, a good defensive team, a good base running team, a good back of the bullpen, a good number one starter in Bieber, uh, a, a potential, uh, you know, uh, you could call him like an X factor in Tristan McKenzie, uh, a guy we've seen do some fantastic things so far this season for Cleveland. But yeah, I, it, a lot of this, I think, is really going to fall, unfortunately, on Ramirez to just have that a Jose Ramirez stretch 
and kind of carry this team as far as he can. Because even as bad as the White Sox and Twins have been, we still know how much talent there is on that roster. We still know how good they can be. Although it should also be noted, like Cleveland has done this. Granted, they have played Detroit seven times in the month of August and won four. Well, they've only won. Well, they won five of those games. But this has not been a cupcake stretch for them. They've had Houston four times a three-game series at Toronto, two games just now against the White Sox. They got two coming at San Diego, four coming at Seattle. Uh, in, uh, sorry, four in Seattle, uh, six in total. Well, it's interesting you say three, Seattle because that's who they get right now. If the playoffs started today, they would play the Mariners. Okay, so then, then that I think that'll be instructive, too, to watch that series and kind of see how that plays out. But this is this is not a cupcake end of the se- season. The, mm. the one benefit that the that Cleveland does have they play the Royals nine more times before the before the end of the season, including six straight hmm. games to finish the year. That is an immense, immense gift to them. Have you looked at some of those uh, Royals offensive numbers the last two weeks? They are atrocious. The Royals are a bad, bad team, and their best offensive player in Vinny Pasquantino just went on the injured list with a strange shoulder that just called honestly, up Drew Waters. Yeah, honestly, if you're the Royals, there's probably no reason to bring Pasquantino back this season and risk aggravating any injury. So you're going to be facing a depleted, bad Royals team. I mean, there's still room for this to change, especially because Cleveland faces Minnesota eight times before the before the. Uh, That's fun, though. I'm glad that they the have the eight season. more games in the calendar. Yes, it worked and out that, pretty nicely. That stretch is almost certainly going to decide the division because mm-hmm. Chicago only faces Cleveland three more times, all of them in Chicago about a week or about a week and a half before the end of the season. Um but yeah, I I, th- I think Cleveland can hold on. But I think one, it, obviously they need Jose Ramirez to be Jose Ramirez. Two, they need Cle- the sh- they need Chicago and Minnesota to keep being injured. And three, they need to make the most of the hay they do have in their schedule, which is to say those nine games against Kansas City, uh, as well as three games against Texas and three games against Los Angeles. Realistically, you know they need to go like nine and three in those twelve games because the rest of their schedule otherwise is contenders, including immediate contenders. Um, who are going to be right in their path in terms of determining the AL Central. Absolutely. Well, we'll see what happens, John. We'll see what happens in the AL Central, but cool nonetheless. Uh, what's also cool, did you hear about this? See this? Artie Moreno getting ready to sell the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, John. A couple decades in the books. Got his ring decades ago. Um, shout out to our guy, David Eckstein. Who uh, the memories will be there Shout forever? Um, John Shout out Loss. Shout out Russell. No, Russell Ortiz on the Giants. Sorry. Shout out John Lackey. John Lackey. Um, Tim Salmon. Yeah, let's remember some angels. Shout out. Um, I, I've already forgotten my angels. <laughs> I was going to say Vernon Wells for a while. He wasn't. Was he? He wasn't on that Angels. He was on that team. I, I thought we were just going like just memorable angels. Oh no, I was just contracts. trying to think about that 2002 team. Oh, on that 2002 yeah. team. Now, that's a good question. Shout out Jared Washburn. Jared shout Washburn. Out, shout out Scott Shields. That, that is a name I've not heard yeah. in a long time. There's a um, There you go, John. Uh, shout out Benji Molina. Ooh, that man. Uh, there you go. I like it, John. Um, but this is kind of cool. This came out of nowhere. Uh, Artie Moreno selling the Angels. Uh, it, fi- it took ruining the careers of or the trajectory <laughs> of uh two generational talents before he was like maybe i'm not the right owner to uh make sure that baseball just does not have a decade of uh just missing their iconic just 
unbelievable uber talented players not playing meaningful baseball ever uh that was a classic whoopsies maybe somebody else can uh, steer this ship a little better than me um a great time a little late Ari Marino, a little late. You just uh, I mean, if, if if you're an Angels fan, you wish he had done this like 10 years ago. Yes. Um, uh, but better late than never, I guess. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, well, the, the truth is, the problem is it's too, it is too late in the sense that, like you said, they've wasted the career of Mike Trout, who very clearly has now exited his prime in part because he cannot stay healthy the same way he used to. Yep. And um, which is both very depressing and, and very kind of strange to think about that we are now in the backside of the back nine of Mike Trout's career, potentially. Um, he wasted the prime of the greatest player most of us will ever see in our lifetimes. He has wasted likely the only years that the second coming of Babe Ruth will choose to give this absolute poverty franchise. He wasted countless other good seasons in there included. Um, the, the funny thing about Moreno is you can't say he didn't try because if nothing else, he was willing to approve the, the extension for Trout. He was willing to approve the expenditure for a guy like Anthony Rendon. They very clearly were in on Garrett Cole before he chose the Yankees. You know, this is a team that has not necessarily, I mean, obviously the Albert Pujols signing and the gigantic uh, contract that he got when he hit the free agent market. And in retrospect, obviously that didn't play out, but at the same time, when Albert Pujols becomes available as a free agent, it is probably a good idea to try to sign Albert Pujols, at least at that point in his career. There wasn't exactly any reason to point to that and be like, that's a bad idea beyond the fact that it was, you know, a very long, very expensive contract that very clearly didn't pay out. Part of me wonders how much of Moreno is just he no longer has the stomach for this kind of stuff. You can almost see, you can almost hear him being like, I gave Albert Pujols, I gave money to my crowd, I gave money to Anthony Rendon, I still can't win a damn thing. Hell with this, I give up. Again, Angels fans wish he'd given up sooner. But so much of that is just the, the the reality that Moreno has been one of the more meddlesome owners in baseball in the last ever since he bought the, the Angels to a Steinbrenner level degree. You can't get away with that unless you also either have the results Steinbrenner does or the like the front office he does, which Moreno never did, in part because of his just nonstop meddling, meddling, sorry. And also just the fact that that meddling included stuff like not wanting to pay for things like complimentary pieces. You know, we always ever, how many, how many off seasons in a row have we looked at the angels and gone, there are stars here, but then there are some really big holes that this team just decided it didn't want to do anything about. And I think a lot of that blame can rightfully go to Moreno for Moreno. One being one of those owners is like, yeah, I love the big splashy signings. I love Rendon. I love Pooh holes. I love, you know, the trout. I love getting Otani, but it's like, but not doing the work, to do better with regards to like a better farm system, better player development, better. Um, it's a more frustrating version of the Rockies, right? Where the Rockies are like, we signed Chris Bryant. What more do you want us to do? And it's like everything else, everything that's else. Like- There's so much more you need to do. Like, <laughs> and I think it, that's, and I think that's a good comparison that the Monforts with the Rockies are not dissimilar to the Moreno, mm-hmm. to Moreno with the angels where it's owners who are willing to spend money, but only in a very narrow band for guys that they think are stars. Mm-hmm. Not that not necessarily the ones that their front office is like, Hey, what about this guy? But guys are like, I like that guy. Get me that guy. And it's like, well, getting you that guy is how we ended up paying $240 million to Albert Pujols and then a contract so bad we had to cut him with like $80 million left. That's how mm-hmm. we ended up giving $200 plus million to Anthony Rendon, whose entire like right, left or right side of his body, I can't remember which, is basically surgically rebuilt at this point. Like, 
you you cannot succeed as an owner without I think being willing to listen to the people who are actually in charge and who know something about baseball. And I think Moreno in particular was someone who fancied himself to be a real baseball expert. When in reality, it's like, no, man, you're just the money. You're just you're the bank. You're the casino. Like you're the checks. You know, you are not some brilliant baseball guy just because you happen to be rich enough to buy the angels, you know? And I think what's really frustrating to me about Artie Moreno ultimately is that his reward for wasting, not just wasting Mike Trout's prime, but also ensuring that whoever buys the angels will get the back half of Mike Trout's career and probably will not get Shohei Otani either, because I have to imagine by this point, Otani is simply tired of the way this franchise operates and wants to go somewhere that will I win. Think he's gone. I, think I think Otani's gone. gone. In, in tire, and especially because whoever now buys this team is going to face ostensibly at least the same theoretical well that's the biggest the part of this right with. is like does this mean we've seen yes, this with the nationals I think, now like, i think we, this means otani is gone because i think it means 100 percent he's gone but does that mean trout opens up like is that something where I, you just want to clear problem, the books the problem at this point is given the way mike trout has played the last few years and given the way these injuries have kind of sapped who he is what contender, because there's no point in anything other than a contender trading for Mike Trout, mm-hmm. what contender wants to take on the money and the years left to him? Oh, the Mets. That would be very funny for He's a from New Jersey, isn't he? Yeah, but I, he's, a, he's a Philly guy. That the, I mean, he's in New Jersey. Like, he gets to, he's, like, the, they'll no, be man. able to get. Look, there's there's yeah. New York, New Jersey, and there's Philly, New Jersey. <laughs> Mike Trout is very squarely Philly, New Jersey. Well, I guess what I'm saying broadly, more broadly, is just that, like, his family can come. Like, his sure. family will well, not they, be. No, and look, I think, I, I think it does definitely open up the possibility that, that, um, the Trout, you know, may be at the end of his Angels tenure, because that's another thing. Whoever takes over this team, is not going to be interested in paying what's left to Mike Trout, is not going to be interested in giving Shohei Otani the $500 million contract he's going to be looking for and that he deserves. Mariners do it. Is probably going to be in a similar scenario to where the Nationals are now, where it's going to be like, no, 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 tear it down. We start over and we just build cheap for a bit. Because whoever takes over, whoever buys this team, as as is the case with pretty much every professional sports owner now, is going to be leveraged to the eyeballs and debt you know, in a, in a sale that is not going to have a lot of cash in it, that is probably going to have a multi-person ownership group. There's not going to be one guy more likely than not. So, and the, the, I think the thing that I hate the most is that Artie Moreno for, after 20 years of mismanaging this franchise, every possible direction is going to walk away with a billion dollars. I wonder if Balmer buys him. I'm curious. I'm curious now who, and because this is the thing too, like who who have the owners, who have the new owners we've seen recently? Who have they been? You know, you've got you've got guys like Steve Cohen. You've got mm-hmm. the the family that owns Walmart buying the Denver Guggenheim. Broncos. Uh, you've got Guggenheim owning the Dodgers. You've got all the. I mean, and granted, this isn't going to happen. I don't think necessarily in the United States, but we shall see. You've got all the various uh, foreign interests buying teams in professional leagues in Europe. You know, the the way that uh, the Petro states of the of of the Arabian Peninsula and of the Gulf have made their entry into not just the Premier League, but other professional soccer leagues across Europe. You know, it looks like that is more the direction that this will go. I don't know that there are future Artie Morenos necessarily out Mm. there unless they're at the wealth level of someone like a Steve Cohen. And then at that point, you are talking guys like Bezos or Balmer or it would I think Bezos is getting the Nationals. I think that I, I don't think he has any interest in sports, though. When is she? When has he shown any interest in sports? I think it's that, just, that dude loves it's not sports. But remember how we we've talked about this in this pod now for years. It's just that like a lot of these owners look at it as portfolios. So it is. But I but I think that a guy like Bezos has no need to add to his as sports team to his portfolio 
he already has, I mean, he already has Amazon and the Washington Post and a billion other things that make him more money than God. You know, he, he is not someone who needs to own a sports. He would, he is someone I could see buying a sports team, but only in the Mark Cuban sense of because I really, really want one. Hmm. And Bezos does not strike me, at least based on what Maybe we've seen. Maybe his wife buys publicly. it. That would be very funny on its own. Ex-wife, I mean, the, the Angels are the ultimate yeah. charity case, so I could definitely see Mackenzie Bezos doing that. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't think Bezos is, we've never seen any indication that he's a sports guy, much less a baseball guy. Um, and that's kind of the thing. Like, unless you're a Steve Cohen, you want is just the money guy who has no baseball knowledge and is like, I don't know what. Yeah, I'll just <laughs> hire the right guy. That like they just someone he someone pulls him aside and he's just like, give me the list of the best GMs and the best guy. Okay, how much does Theo want? All right, we'll just yeah, fine. Uh, yeah. But like, I that's why unless it's a Steve Cohen who happens to be both a billionaire and a diehard Mets fan, unless mm-hmm. there's some Southern California billionaire who has lived and died with the Angels their entire life. I think this is more likely to be something where this ends up, this doesn't being a consortium that takes control of the team and does, like you said, use it as a portfolio, mostly because I'd be curious. And, and I don't know, I've never been to Angel Stadium. I don't know what the layout there is like. I don't know what the opportunities or availability is to do something like a Wrigleyville type setup or to try to turn it into like a Braves type setup with Truist Park. And, you know, I, I don't know what the state of the Big A or whatever that stadium is now called really is. But I can easily see it being some group where it's like we want to take over the Angels and turn it into an ex- a quote unquote capital E experience, you know, mm. where we're going to have we're going to we're going to make it a, a destination. We're going to have a new stadium. It's going to be luxury boxes and it's going to be cool and fun and blah, blah, blah. People and have wondered not going out like, oh, they move. It's like they're not leaving the L.A. market. No, no they're not going to leave the happening. L.A. market. Where yeah. would they go? Like baseball already has this existing problem of there are already plenty of places that want a baseball team, but mm-hmm. none of the major league baseball seems all that enamored of the biggest option would be Vegas, which the A's are going to court as hard and as heavy as they can. Mm-hmm. The major league baseball already needs to figure out what it wants to do with the Rays because the Rays have made it clear that they do not want to stay in St. Petersburg um, or where, I mean, I guess they're just move that freaking team to like, Montreal. Goodness gracious. Yeah. Like it's, it, I don't really see where the Angels would end up, but I think you're right that there's no real way that that's going to happen. L.A. is the destination that other teams and other owners use to get what they want right. from their home city. You don't not flee the L.A. Yeah, you, don't, you don't flee L.A., especially because the city of Los Angeles is going to go, okay, you want to, or Anaheim, I guess, Orange County, you want to leave? Okay, fine, whatever, literally leave. We do not care. Like, we didn't even remember you were here. The Dodgers And also, are we can too. get somebody else. That's the thing is, like, they're, yeah. they, they're not worried about that. It's like, oh, if you leave, guess what? We'll always, like, they're... Other owners want to move here. Like, that's the yeah, whole exactly. thing. It's like, if you leave, we'll just bring in no, the, somebody else the, later on. Whoever buys the Angels, I think, will there will have to be that commitment to, to being like, we're going to stay in Anaheim and we're going to, again, we're going to make this an experience. We're going to make this better. And yeah. I think the only real way that happens, again, barring some multi-billionaire who just has had love in his heart for the Angels forever, you know, maybe it's, I don't know, maybe Joseph Gordon-Levitt is like, I love making will Angels Ferrell? in the outfield so much that... I'm going to buy this team and run it. And that would be really Goodness weird. gracious. I well, we saw Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhaney. Didn't they buy a team together? They did. They bought a team called Wrexham, which I believe is in England's fourth or fifth division of professional soccer. I mean, that's the thing. You can do that if you buy a team. It'd be the equivalent of buying like a Frontier League team. Yeah. Or an Atlantic League team where it's like you're not going to make any money off that. You're just doing it because you really want to own a team and you really like the sport, but you don't have nearly enough money for a major professional enterprise. So, no, I, I see the Angels being something more like the Broncos, where it's just a, a wealthy consortium or family that just has fuck you money is like, well, we'll just we'll buy it and we'll use it to diversify our portfolio and we'll use it to invest in real estate. Because, again, Artie Moreno is going to walk away from this with a billion dollars, no matter what, you know, like there is no better financial come up 
over a, over a, over a, a, a long stretch of time than owning a sports team. You cannot lose money, especially because whoever takes over the Angels almost certainly is going to say, tear it down. Get rid of the big contracts. Get rid of the big money. We need to start fresh. Uh, breaking news, John. Yes. Phillies prospect Bryce Harper goes deep to cut the Stripers lead three to one. Admittedly, he looks like one to watch in the future from uh, the Gwinnett Stripers team Twitter account. Okay. It's a great tweet. Cool. He's healthy. He's coming back. Uh, he, a name to watch out for. Bryce Harper. That is Harper with an H. Harper with um, an H. How do you spell Bryce? Hey, John. Can you tell me like what the couple days in between the Rangers firing Chris Woodward and then firing John Daniels were like? Can you explain to me how that was not like the same day type situation where we're going to clean house? That came out like a couple of days later that John Daniels is also out who got kind of elevated, but kind of pushed to the side because it was like he's not running the team anymore. But he got that weird made up role where it's like. We, you're in the room. You're the executive vice president to the president of the president relations, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, well, he doesn't have... But he's also been there forever. He was in that Brian Cashman zone where we talked about it, I think, a few months back of like, maybe when we were doing the Rangers preview, it's just that like this man's been there forever. He was the youngest GM in baseball when he got the job originally. He constructed a winner right away, bright baseball mind. And then it's just been bad for years and years and years. And... They fire Woodward after four years, and then a couple days later, they're like, all right, I guess we'll just move on from John Daniels, too. That is really strange order of operations here in Texas. Texas is this low-key dumpster fire that I think are getting overlooked a little bit. Yeah, and part of it for me, too, is like, I, I think the the Rangers majority owner, Ray Davis, I believe that's his name, mm. said that he did act, he did want to fire both, and he, he did fire both. Mm. But for whatever reason, he just delayed two days between Woodward and Daniels. I mean, it, it seems like even Chris Young didn't know that it was going to be, that it was going to be the choice. Yeah. I mean, part of me is not surprised because this is very clearly more Young's team now than Daniels is. I mean, Young has been the the forward face of it since they hired him. Um, Woodward was obviously a Daniels hire and it make, doesn't really make sense. I think to remove Daniels manager, but then let him just kind of hang on there twisting in the wind. I mean, he's been there for 20 some years. This may be something where I think ownership just feels like they need a, a a fresh voice of some kind. What's interesting to me is that the way it was framed is that Texas really expected to be, or at least Texas ownership expected this team to be better than it currently is. And there are definitely indications that this team probably should be better than it currently is. Like we've noted uh, when we talked about Woodward getting fired by Pythagorean record or by runs allowed and runs scored, this team really should be 500 or, or somewhere around it. Instead, they're about 10 games under they've had a terrible record in one run games. You know, their bullpen has been very bad. There, you know, there, but there are legitimate reasons to look at this Rangers roster and think, hey, there's something, if not great here, at least the beginnings of something good, or at least that's the way we saw it. I think it's interesting that Texas ownership is already even thinking a little further ahead of that and being like, hey, we should be better than this, and we're going to try to get better than this. And I think that's probably the thing to be most taken out of this. And also that it's not impossible for this Rangers team to be better next year. I think it's going to require a fair amount of work in free agency and on the trade market and actually being willing to, you know, make some more big spending decisions. But I think as we, again, as we noted, when Woodward got let go, there, are, there is talent here. There is young talent here in particular. This farm system is on the up. Um, you know, they got Jack Leiter and Kumar Rocker in back-to-back drafts. They're going to get another, I believe, top 15 pick coming out of this draft, if not top 10, or coming out of this season, if not top 10. 
So I'm not necessarily surprised by it, but I do find the timing of it weird. And I do find the framing interesting of, you know, the, the Texas ownership really did think this team would be better. And mm-hmm. it does make me wonder that, yeah, this team can be better and probably should be better. But it does make me wonder what happens if next year we get kind of a, the similar something similar plays out where Texas is not really a contender, never really gets to be anywhere close to 500 or maybe is 500, but never is really anything more than that. And what that kind of means for the Rangers going forward as they try to pull off this kind of extended sort of skinny rebuild that they that they have been trying for a bit. The Daniels really kind of tried to make that, that tried. I think that seemed to be the tack he was trying to take for a while was like, let's you know, we'll rebuild, but we're not in a teardown kind of way. We're going to do it bit by bit, piece by piece and, and just accumulate talent in kind of waves. It hasn't fully worked. I think the pieces are there, but. I can at the very least understand, too, like I, I, I get the sense that, again, Texas ownership expected the team to be better and how much better. I'm not sure, but I don't think they expected like 10 games under 500, you know, a, a closer, much closer to last than first in this division. And I think just simply because of that, I think that probably made up ownership's mind in terms of Woodward and Daniels have to go, because if they can't do better with the pieces that we've given them and granted, they only you know, they only gave them so many good players. There's still work to be done in Texas. But I think ultimately, if this team materially results wise is not any different than teams previous, then we need to change something. And I can understand that. I can I think I can support it ultimately. Like, I, I, I mean, it's no skin off my nose if Texas wants to do something different. But it, it ultimately it doesn't surprise me. I, I did find the timing weird, though. I, I didn't really get why that happened. I don't really get why it wasn't just Woodward and Daniels at the same time. But I don't know. Maybe maybe there was some hesitance on Ray Davis's part to to go that far, you know, and maybe there was something about letting go of Woodward and about the conversations he had in the wake of that that made him decide 100%, okay, we're going to go through with this. Or maybe he just wanted to space it out because he wanted to be in the news two times in a week as opposed to one time. I don't know. It's it's weird, though. It is it is a little weird. We'll see. Uh, John Daniel still somehow only 44 years old. So that yeah, man- he got that job basically like out of college, which makes me want to die. Like, <laughs> Like do you like do, do yourself a, a, a like a favor and look up how old uh, twins or sorry not 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 or the other, not not that Levine uh, the other the other member of Minnesota's general manager front office um, ah not, and now the name has slipped my head that's that's very annoying um, Thad Levine and. Derek Falvey, the uh, president yes. of baseball operations, who I believe is still not 40 yet. There you go. Shout out to he him. He is 39 years old. <laughs> like, it, 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 I'm, I, the, I don't know if I was ever really fully ready to be older than the great majority of baseball players. I'm really not ready to be the same age, if not older, than, like, general managers. That's, yeah, that's a, so that's strange tough. to me. And, like, here – and, like – and this is the thing, like Chris Young is not an old guy either. I mean, his his career ended in the late to early 2010s. Uh, um, so we're talking about a guy who is looking up. He's only 43 years old. You know, this is John, this is we're not, old enough where it's not weird for us to be group of five head football coaches. Oh, man, that's so bizarre. You, you and I are like at this point too old to be like coordinators. Yes, we're getting. Yeah, we're right there where it's like, yeah, it's kind of like, like one of those things where you're like, point are, you doing, like in their early to mid 30s. Mm-hmm. Oof. Oh, that is so bizarre. Well, on, that, on that gray hair inducing note. 
Um, our last thing I wanted to touch on real quick, the Cardinals who are having a blistering August Indeed. now running away with the AL Central as the Brewers who were kind of weird sellers and had one of the weirder under the radar uh, trade deadlines. Josh Hader, who is now like just really not. Uh, doing yeah, it, well. it turns out they were right about Josh Hader. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, <laughs> a, a rare W. Um, but you look at it and I'm just like, the Cardinals, I mean, the pool hole stuff is fascinating for a multitude of reasons. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing what he's doing. Unreal stuff. I mean, we're taping this on a Tuesday night. He's, what, seven home runs away? He's at 693 for his career. Yeah, there is a there is a like one in five chance, I would estimate, that he makes it to 700 before the end of the year. I. It's amazing, too, because it seems like when I was listening to Starkville today, and they were talking to uh, the radio voice of the Cardinals, and he's been adamant that he's retiring. Like, there's no chance that he walks it yeah, back. Yeah, I mean, next every year. Bob Nightingale. If he's at 699, he's not coming back next year, which is wild. Bob, Bob Nightingale, um, patron saint of typos, mm-hmm. did an interview with Pujols after that game in Arizona where he homered twice, or I think during that series. I don't know if it was after that game. And uh, in that th- in that same play, and that and Pools was adamant there too. Like I'm done. This is the end. I'm not coming back. I don't care how many home runs I finish with. I mean, I think he understands that. Like even if he were to get to 700, like I mean, it's it's nuts to think about because when you start like gaming it out that way, you can say like, okay, well, if you get to 700, you're only 15 away from passing literally Babe Ruth for number three, <sighs> literally all time. And he can do that. And like, he could do it. But I think there's also that maybe there's a sentiment in Pujols' head beyond beyond the the motivations for him to retire, which I think is in large part, you know, his body is not is not up to the grind. You know, he is 41, 42 years old. I think he wants to be. I mean, I know he and his his wife are divorced, but you know, that maybe it, I assume that he wants to be closer to family. Um, whatever it happens to be. Well, I think it's also guys. They talk about it like it's the off season where you don't want to get revved up and do the work yeah. it takes to get ready for another season. Like, and that's just and maybe that's part of it. Maybe Pujols the last couple off seasons just felt like you know what, like my heart is still in this to a certain degree, but like I don't know for how much longer. And the thought of doing this one more time, and I, I think too, especially with the way the year has played out and with all the you know the way that the Cardinals have celebrated him with him being in the All Star game and the home run derby, the fact that he's going to make the playoffs one last time with this Cardinals team, barring a total collapse down the stretch. I think that may just be enough for him. And the other part of it is like, even if he finishes, assuming he finishes, let's say he doesn't Homer again for the rest of the season, for whatever reason, he will still finish fifth all time in career home runs. It is a bonkers thing to consider. Like, does it really matter at a certain point if you're going to finish third or fourth or fifth? Like he knows he has no chance to fin- to beat Barry Bonds's total. Um, he has no real chance to pass Hank Aaron either. The highest Albert Pujols could realistically get is third. He would still need, even if he got the 700, another 15 beyond that, which is at least a full season for him at this point. That's a big grind just to climb a couple more steps on a leaderboard, what that you're already in the top five of for a first ballot Hall of Fame career where you are worshipped as one of the greatest right-handed hitters ever to live. And like, I can understand that, you know, a guy like Pujols didn't want to let go because he thought he still had something to offer. He thought he still had something to give. He thought he was still good enough a player that he could hang on. And he is right in a lot of respects. Like I, I thought Pujols was beyond washed up and he's shown that in the right circumstances, in the right place, he actually has something left to offer. But I think maybe even he understands that those circumstances have to be kind of specific. And regardless of whether or not he has anything left in the tank, I think he might feel like my place in history in this game is so secure. It doesn't matter what what numbers I end up on. It doesn't matter where I finish on this leaderboard. It doesn't matter. Like 
I'm already one of the greatest living baseball players, if not one of the greatest all-time baseball players in the history of the game. And at a certain point, like, what does it matter if you hit 700 homers or 701, you know? Like, he is going to get to go, he's going to get to walk off the field as close to, I won't say the perfect, obviously not the perfect ending, but like, with as close to the ending he could have written up as he wanted, assuming depending on whether or not a World Series ring is included in that. And he already has one, too, you know? Mm. That's also something where it's like, this isn't some desperate chase to hang on and win a championship before he goes. He has one. He's he's won a World Series ring. He's won an MVP. He's hit 693 home runs. He's gonna be he's gonna make the the Hall of Fame with probably like 98% of the vote. Like he has nothing to worry about for the remainder of his but he has nothing. I guess it's the thing, he has nothing to prove to anyone anymore. And I think if anything, this last season, I think in a similar vein to the way David Ortiz went out, when the way he hit, you were you have people being like, yo, he could probably keep doing this another like two or three years. But it's like, no, man, he put so much into that final season. That grind was so enormous. And I think being able to walk off the field on your own, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Kind of on your on your own terms. Thank you. On your own terms mm-hmm. to be like, look, I still got it. And I'm walking away, not, you know, not being released midseason, not hitting 200 in my final at bats, not getting retired by guys half my age who don't even know who I am really. Like I get to go out as Albert Pujols. I can't imagine any better ending than that. Again, kind of like Jeter. Yeah, kind of like Jeter or like David Ortiz, where it's like they got to go out on their own terms. And I think that more than anything was what Pujols wanted, that he didn't want to be the guy who retired because nobody wanted him on a team anymore or because the Angels thought he was he made too much money or he didn't want to go out as just being like an itinerant, like lefty mashing DH option for like pseudo contenders. Like, I think what if he hit 700 in the World Series or something? Well, I mean, he's already he's already passed 700 in terms of if you add up his postseason homers too. Oh, okay, I guess that's true. Yeah. So he's no, he's already passed seven. He's already passed 700 total when you include everything like that. Yeah. But I think that more than anything is like Albert Pujols wanted this particular ending. He wanted to be a Cardinal. He wanted to show he still had something left. I imagine he wanted to be on a winning team again. I imagine being on the Dodgers probably maybe may have been some kind of like, oh yeah, being on a winning team again. This is cool. Like games in September actually matter again. Like there's a chance of playing in October. Like. You well, know, there's like some weird elixir going on in St. Louis because it's not just him. It's Wainwright. It's Yachty. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's Arenado having his non Did you see that bare season. hand by Arenado the other day? I mean, the dude is still one of the best defensive third basemen in baseball, which is not like ludicrous to think about. He's like 33 years old and is it. It's it, it, cardinal devil magic. We've talked about this for decades, John. The devil magic in St. Louis. Is, look at Jordan Montgomery. Yeah. We ran an article today on Fangrass. He has been the most impactful deadline acquisition by any team in baseball. Can we by roll out the lot, Yankees struggles and the Yankees just falling off a cliff to the Jordan Montgomery trade? Can we roll it out? I would love for that to become a thing that the Jordan Montgomery trade just be the Harrison Bader trade. Like what if well, that Harrison Bader's going to have to hit like 600 when he comes back to make up for this. Poor Aaron Boone, man, pounding the table. They're doing all kinds of weird stuff, trying to get over the like pacing in different ways around the dugout to get over this historic slump. It's pretty amazing. Um, they would be the first team. I think Stark had, uh, they would be the first team to, do you hear that, by the way? Khaleesi the dog is losing her mind. What? I'm trying to get my point across on the Cardinals. Um, She's not, the Yankees so we got a, your, your dog's a Cubs fan, clearly. Oh, well, we are in Smokey's country, John. There you go. And uh, it is an electric, electric vibe uh, here for the Cubs. But um, I just I think it's so fascinating because they would be the first team to be at the record they were 
and in the pace they were on to not win 100 games ever. Like they're for the Yankees not to win 100 games this year based on the start they had would be unbelievable. Like that is just even if it's they, wild. Although I, it is worth remembering, like when, when we think about like remember the 2017 Dodgers who also were uh, like as hot as the surface of the sun at one point yeah remember when they lost like 14 out of 15 games at one point i do remember this yes and they had this brutal brutal second half where they just looked like they could not win for a long stretch of time like they just forgot how to play baseball collectively Mm. i mean this is that's not to say it's a one-to-one comparison of like those dodgers equal sign these yankees but like it does happen like hot teams just do go cold sometimes and like you can point to a fair amount of things this is longer than 14 to 15 games this is okay how long now uh it's been a good long bit they yeah. have not they have yet to win three games and three or more games in a row since like the end of june it, it's it's been a bit for the yankees but I, I think more just to say that like hot teams slump cold teams get hot sometimes and for the yankees you can point to a bunch of stuff like well their bullpen's got a fair amount of injuries and their rotation's got some injuries and their lineup's got some injuries and hopefully when everyone's healthy everything's back to normal but how many it's, Dunkin' it's Donuts in Boston right now? Every morning, people are going in. They're like, yeah, the Sox suck, but uh, those Yankees, they lost another series. Am I well, right? The, like, the funny thing is, the Yankees being bad when they were bad meant that they were giving up wins to the Rays and Blue Jays and Orioles that just screwed the Red Sox further when it came to the postseason. And granted, the Red Sox weren't this Red Sox team was not going to make the, the postseason anyway. But that Yankee skid was actually incredibly poorly timed for the Red Sox, who really needed the Yankees to just keep destroying the rest of the AL East to keep the wild card conversation alive. Yeah. John, Cleese the dog is uh, ready for a, uh, a W. I can't even say the actual word on this podcast because she will know. Um, so we end it here. Yeah. Dog can't. She can spell. Um, John, what can the good folks check out from you at Fangraphs.com and the good team over there this week? Uh, so like I mentioned today, we had a few things, notably Dan Samborski on, uh, it's funny I mentioned Chris or Christian Yelich earlier on Cody Bellinger and the kind of just total collapse of his career. Uh, Jay Jaffe had a piece speaking of the Yankees on the Yankees and what's going to happen to them. He's going to have a follow-up piece on Frankie Montes tomorrow and how he's had kind of a rough start to his tenure in pinstripes. Um, Ben Clemens will have a piece coming out on Alex Bregman. Justin Choi has one coming on NL Cy Young favorite Sandy Alcantara. A lot of good stuff coming as we kind of focus in on particularly these contending teams and these kind of awards-worthy players down the stretch, kind of noting all the big stories before we go. Uh, But yeah, just keep on coming down to fan graphs as we get ready for the playoffs. It's Man, we only got like like five more weeks of this, and then it's postseason time, baby. I'm also also very, very worried for you for that for that first Saturday of the postseason that's going to run right into college football. It can't be any worse than last year, John. Last year was horrific. Like the Braves run every night and then just having uh, the Falcons, Tennessee, everything where you're like, oh, God. And I swear playoff games go so much longer than regular season games. So you're just like all the pitching changes and all the the extra ad breaks. The the, I I believe the average postseason game last year was like three hours and like 20 minutes. That sounds about right. Seemingly long. Um, so we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But I mean, I'll be back in the building uh, next Tuesday. This will be the first postseason for me as a married man, John. Wow. Look at you. I know. Three and a half weeks. Very exciting. Yeah. Last semester, grad school starts uh, next big, week. So big things happening. Big things happening. John Taylor. Follow you on Twitter, Jay Taylor. And uh, as always, you can check us out on YouTube. Full videos over there on the YouTube page, youtube.com slash Chase Podcast. Like and subscribe, all the good stuff. And also go subscribe to fangraphs.com as Khaleesi the dog. Uh, also insists. John, thank you as always, and I will talk to you next week. Sounds good, dude. All right, y'all, that'll do it for the 
Wednesday, August 24th, 2022 edition here on the Chase Thomas Podcast. Thank you as always for making the Chase Thomas Podcast part of your day listen wherever and however you listen to this program. We greatly appreciate it. If you enjoyed today's episode, please, please, please make sure that you leave this show a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify if that is indeed how you listen to the program. Go read me and my all my sports writing over at sportsrenaissanceman.substack.com, sportsrenaissanceman.substack.com. Type in your email. That easy, that simple daily newsletter right in your uh, email inbox each and every day. Uh, you can tweet at me at Chase double underscore Thomas and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Chase Thomas writer. Love to hear from you guys as well. Uh, and you can email me at Chase Thomas podcast at gmail.com. Any questions for the show, uh, mailbag stuff for me, uh, anything for the hosts, Chase Thomas podcast at gmail.com. All right. New episode tomorrow on the Chase Thomas podcast. Look out for that. Until then, I will talk to y'all tomorrow. Uncle Derek, how'd I do? Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.